MSW Media. The bombshell public impeachment hearings started this week. What mattered and what comes next? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, but she's still on the campaign trail this week. So I'm going to be bringing in our guest, Maya Wiley, in just a moment. But before I introduce her, I want to note that this episode is brought to you by our Patreons, with special thanks to Michelle Dew, Eric DeWurst, Edie, James Frohmeyer, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, and one anonymous patron. You can become a patron, too, on our website, ontopicpodcast.com, all one word. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So let's bring in our guest, Maya Wiley. You probably know her because she's a legal analyst on NBC News and MSNBC, uh, but she's had a distinguished legal career. And you know, In fact, she was the chief legal advisor for the New York City mayor. Uh, she's also um, now currently the senior vice president for social justice at the New School University. Um, and she is also an expert on digital equity and co-directs their digital equity laboratory. Uh, so I am l- excited to speak with her. This is her first time on the podcast. So let's bring her in now. Welcome to the podcast, Maya. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Renato. It's great to be on. Look, you and I have been have shared, I think, privately a lot of thoughts about the hearings this week. I'm curious, what is your you know, key reaction. This is, I think, a, a quite a quite a week, an important moment. Oh, it's an incredibly powerful and disturbing week. Powerful because the witnesses themselves, I think, were so deeply committed to the country, uh, to the Constitution, to their responsibility as public servants to be both fair, accurate, and factual, and nonpartisan. And in doing so, it was so disturbing because, one, they listed every single fact um, we hadn't heard enough about around why this was such a significant national security concern, um, why, the, why what appears to be the president's uh, direction to people who reported directly to him to help him get damaging material on the Bidens in exchange for both a critical meeting opportunity with the new president of Ukraine and also, of course, it appears military aid, um, that given the national security concerns, that use of presidential power was a significant abuse of authority and clearly an impeachable offense. And obviously, if we add Maria Yovanovitch was um, both an incredibly calm, collected, um, and powerful um, witness, but to have to sit there in a public hearing in the U.S. Capitol and be told by the chair of the committee that the president is tweeting about you as you're sitting there trying to give honest testimony about your concerns about the national security of the country was just unspeakably astounding. Yeah, I have to say, um, I feel like her testimony sort of is, is a good illustration of something that can be uh, hard to explain to people who have never tried a case, which is that sometimes the importance of a witness goes beyond the power of their words. There's yes. specific words that they say, right? I think you that's know, right. on. Yeah, if you just like looked at these witnesses on paper, you'd be like, well, she wasn't talking to Donald Trump. She wasn't in the thick of this quid pro quo thing. So what what 
what value does she bring as a witness? And, you know, you, you mentioned some of her qualities. I think she had a real a, a quiet strength. Of, she was a very formidable person. And you, she was also somebody who was uh, harmed by Trump. And she wasn't like the victim of the quid pro quo scheme, whatever you want to call it, the Ukrainian scheme that you just laid out. But she was somebody who was deeply harmed by Trump, and she stood as a contrast to him. And I think that for people, there's a lot of people at home who are like, well, why do I care about this? Mm-hmm. And I think she helped answer that question a little bit. I think you're right. And I think she did it in a way that um, um, Bill Taylor uh, couldn't quite do, because, of course, a lot of the facts and the national security interests Bill Taylor also testified to what made her so important, as you point out, Renato, I think rightly, is one, she was the the first um, public servant victim that she was the she was the bellwether. She it was it was Donald Trump turning on her personally, uh, despite her stellar record as a public servant and the fact that she had just been asked to stay on another year by the State Department in the Ukraine as ambassador because it was such an important and pivotal time to fight corruption in the Ukraine and defend the borders, right, its territorial integrity, that in that moment, he turns on her. And that's when the red flags go up to others. Remember, Bill Taylor comes in just a few days after that, and Mike Pompeo personally asks Bill Taylor, please come and help us in Ukraine, essentially because Donald Trump just pushed their star diplomat out of the Ukraine on the eve of inauguration. So her telling that story, so, you know, we hear this from Bill Taylor. We know that his primary concern, having spoken to Maria Yovanovitch, knowing her personally, knowing her quality, was deeply concerned about whether he should do it. And she says, yes, do it. Uh, we need a strong, competent person in the Ukraine. So her, her telling the story on the stand about this historic inauguration of a, of a new president who is going to stand up to the corruption Donald Trump says he was concerned about when he removed her and when he held up the aid, says that was his concern. Yet, well, I'm sorry, I, I don't know if he said it around removing her. He certainly said it around the the, the foreign aid. Um, but the, 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 he hasn't actually ever answered the question why he removed such a star. But but that story where she is, she's just given an award posthumously to a woman who has fought corruption in the Ukraine, and it cost her her life. It cost her her life. And this is a hardship posting. And this is a career public servant who herself personally dodged bullets for the country. And Donald Trump tweets, you didn't do a good enough job dodging those bullets in Somalia, essentially. So it, it was it, that the kind of you're right, because that I, I'm just agreeing with you, but it really were those the, those moments and then the juxtaposition of Donald Trump's excruciatingly intimidating and abusive behavior while she was on that stand. And and the, that was something that Bill Taylor couldn't do because he was not the person who was in the midst of that level of attack and abuse with the striking counterpart of of her story about standing up to corruption and the costs of doing so. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, going into the day, I will confess to you, Maya, that I wasn't sure how much the public would be interested in the ambassador's testimony uh, because, you know, I, a lot of times the the news cycle is such that people are always looking for, well, how does this affect Trump? What does this mean? How does this move the ball forward? You know, it's all very, you know, X's and O's. And despite all of the things that she brings as a witness that go beyond what the testimony was, you know, to me, her 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 value was that she told the story. She was the kind of the starting person in the story, even you know, even aside from all of the strengths and the important things she brought to the table that we discussed earlier. But there's no question that Donald Trump ensured that she would not only be her testimony would dominate the news coverage, but that. 
he created essentially a moment that I think will be remembered coming out of this uh, impeachment inquiry, which, you know, of that tweet and her response to it. And I, I certainly give credit to Chairman Schiff in real time interrupting um, the staff attorney, uh, Mr. Goldman, and um, asking uh, the ambassador about that. Um, but but I, I also but I will also say she, you know, for someone who's reserved, you know, people who speak um with uh, have loose loose speak loosely and throw a lot of accusations around. Let's say Rudy Giuliani. Whenever they say something, they're kind of like the boy who cried wolf. You you don't take it seriously. But given how careful and thoughtful and reasoned um, the ambassador's responses were, um, her um, her saying that that is very intimidating. I think carried a, str- a kind of a weight to it that it, it otherwise would not it would not have uh, carried if it was someone else. Yes, completely agree. I mean, she had the ability to be um, calm and measured, and yet uh, and honest. It, it was a very um, honest answer to to say you're intimidated, particularly when you have remember you had Hannity saying the night before predicting she was going to break down and cry. As if, as if that would be mm-hmm. um, a, a, a somehow a negative strike against her. I actually think, under the circumstances, you know, it, any number of very, very strong people might cry, and we shouldn't human, denigrate yeah. that. It's very, it's a very human thing. But, but, but to be honest about feeling intimidated after after people go after you, suggesting you might be <laughs> that you might have some emotional weaknesses. Uh, is 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 even is even braver. So I, I think you're absolutely right. At, you know, the coming. Uh, the other thing I want to completely underscore that you've already said, Renato, was, you know, I like you thought. Well, listen, this is she. She obviously um, gives us a context to what we're trying to understand in the impeachment process, but she is not the direct witness. So in that sense, that as we knew that the Republicans were going to go after, but you didn't really, you weren't in these conversations. You weren't there on July 10th. You weren't there on July 25th or July 26th. You know, any of these key dates um, that Congress is investigating to better understand Donald Trump's state of mind, what he may have said, what in fact happened, she was not the person who's going to be able to answer those questions. So, of course, understandably, we just didn't know how much interest there would be. We and and I, like you, I think thought it was going to be a a a an important but simple day. <laughs> I didn't think it was going to be unimportant, but I didn't think. But I thought it was going to be pretty straightforward and simple. It became a lot more complicated. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, an effective way of dealing with their testimony would have been for the Republicans to do. I mean, certainly for the most part, they were not trying to attack her personally and just to say, okay, well, you didn't see this. You didn't do that. You know, you didn't you weren't a witness to this. And there was some questioning along those lines. And, you know, if they stuck to that, uh, you know, that would be effective if this was a criminal trial. You know, I would have gotten up and I would have done less than five minutes of questioning total for this witness if I was on the defense, uh, you know, the defense lawyer here just said, you know, you don't, you, you know, just kind of explore the what I'll call the limits of her knowledge, what she didn't see, what she didn't hear, what she didn't know. And I'd sit down. Yeah, uh, because, absolutely. Because yeah. all, all, in fact, as the questioning continued, it just gave her more, it gave her the opportunity, especially as counsel for the Republicans side, asking open-ended questions that enabled her to underscore just how not normal all this was, just how outside of the way that modern diplomacy uh, works, the way that U.S. national policy was was formulated, and how outside of the, all of this that was, which while she couldn't be a fact witness on any of those kind of key dates and key conversations, she certainly was an expert witness on U.S. policy, the national security interests of the country, and that everything, and and gave her more opportunity to talk about what was being told to her about Rudy Giuliani's role uh, with 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 someone, a former prosecutor general of the Ukraine that she knew to be someone who was not prosecuting corruption. 
So that yeah. that that enabled her to more deeply establish what she was credible on and what is, I think, germane to the impeachment process. And to your point, not something that uh, as a defense lawyer, you would want to give the witness opportunity to expound upon. Yeah. I mean, I will say, you know, the, the Republicans, um, you know, in one sense, there's a, a, a there's a kind of standard playbook that that is going on here, which is if the evidence isn't going your way, you try to distract or confuse the issues, which is, a, I think, a, a fairly commonplace defense strategy when you don't have when the evidence isn't going your way when it is you you obviously highlight the you know the the evidence that helps you or the issues with the evidence but you know they have not executed that plan very well it's just been very ham-handed and uh um you know obviously trump himself is a real uh impediment to that i mean to me the biggest uh, and trump's greatest enemy is himself not only with that tweet today but Refusing to admit any kind of wrongdoing. I mean, I think uh, a different human being, if Donald Trump was a different human being uh, than he is, he would have before all this said, you know, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have got Giuliani involved in foreign policy. I shouldn't have done that. And, uh, you know, I I probably, uh, you know, should have released the aid right away and I screwed up, but that's not an impeachable offense or, you know, something like that. Kind of tried to take the wind out of the sails of some of this, but by sticking to his guns, by admitting no fault, by forcing the Republicans to just, um, you know, sort of try to create a circus to distract from the obvious, which is that there was a quid pro quo here or bribery, whatever you want to call it. And we can get to that issue later. Um, I think that's that that's that's ultimately really uh, hurt the Republicans. Well, I think that's right. I, I think, that, I, as we know, it's it's not in Donald Trump's personality to ever admit fault or weakness, uh, or any mistake. It, it also, as the evidence has come out, has become, even if he did that, he, there's the, the, the striking thing about the end of the last week, which is going to make this week even more important is Donald, uh, um, sorry, I'm blanking on his name. Is it David Hines? Oh, sure. The, you're talking about the aide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The aide, um, who overheard the uh, call, who, right. Who, who overheard. So, who overheard this incredibly damaging call um, sitting in Kiev with Sondland, who overhearing a conversation with Donald Trump. And that is so pivotal because the only thing that the Republicans have been able to say is, you didn't have a conversation with president. You don't know what the president said beyond the call summary. You, you know, <laughs> yeah, but, right. But in, but in, in, in whatever is being transmitted to Sondland or Volker or Giuliani or Perry or Mulvaney, you don't know what he has said. Uh, in other words, they're still plausible. They argue. I think the call summary is a different, makes a counterpoint, but they can certainly argue more effectively that no one has demonstrated how Donald Trump was directly at, uh, um, was directly somehow more interested in getting dirt that helped him in his election versus something bigger, right? Like corruption exactly. broadly, because that's the argument they're making about the call summary. Doesn't read that way to me, but I but that's the argument I would make if I were in their shoes. But this this conversation takes that off the table, and so if Donald Sandlin comes in this week, and you know, is he going to deny that that conversation happened? We've heard there are two other witnesses. So if it did happen and he denies it, he could very well be in even more legal jeopardy than he may be now. Is he? But if he admits to it, then they're in. Then Donald Trump's in even deeper trouble. It's going to be a very interesting week. Yeah, for sure. And and his name I, I just looked at is David Holmes. David Holmes uh, is the, yeah. yep. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I agree with you, uh, Maya. That that, that uh, Gordon Sondland's testimony to me is at least unless some other witness comes out of the woodwork, right? Um, mm-hmm. you know, somebody like Bolton or Mulvaney just decides to take the stand, which it does not appear likely. It seems out of the witnesses that we expect to receive, the, that Sondland's testimony is going to be the most weighty. And it's partly because of this issue you raised. I mean, the Republicans have, I think, effectively pointed out that certain people are not uh, don't have uh, direct contact with Trump. But, but Mr. Sondland does. He was on the phone with Trump talking about these issues. So 
Um, I, I, I've always thought that was an interesting uh, argument on their part because you're going to hear from the guy this week. Now I was going to tell you, yeah, I was on the phone with Trump yeah. uh, discussing these matters. But, um, you know, w- what I would say about Sondland's testimony uh, it, when, I, when I've read it as a whole is he seems to me like a guy who's torn between two things. One is he very much wants to have good standing with Trump and the Trump world. You know, he's a guy who donated a million dollars to the Trump inauguration. He's a hotel mogul type guy himself. Um, but at the same, and so he's trying to spin things as best as he can, but he has a sense of shame. He's not shameless like someone like Corey Lewandowski. Uh, he, 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 has a, he cares enough about his own reputation that he's not going to go in there and just baldly lie or do something crazy. And so he's trying to defend the indefensible as best he can or try to put the best possible spin on it, which means that at times he will say things that are harmful to Trump. And I actually think that that makes his testimony more believable because it's clear that he's in the bag for Trump, but nonetheless is saying things that are harmful to him. I think, yes. I I think the question becomes, is he going to continue to be more honest in order to make it clear that he is not perjuring himself because, yeah. you know, I, I mean, he, he is, he is in a complicated position now. And I think he, one did the right thing when he amended his testimony because he clearly was not telling the truth in that completely in that first testimony, but leaving out the July 26th conversation. I mean, is he going to keep saying he just didn't remember, um, uh, I think it'll be interesting to see h- how he talks about that and um, and how forthcoming it, it, he is. And is he going to do a Kurt Volker? I mean, Kurt Volker also is in an interesting position this week when he testifies, because, again, you know, it, Kurt Volker was another person who was suggesting, oh, yes, you know, all these things were troubling, but but we were holding the line on U.S. policy was to support Ukraine and that they needed the military aid almost as a saying. So therefore, this isn't really that troubling. You know, going back to this isn't really impeachable argument. But that just doesn't hold water as we get more of the facts and details around these transactions. And just imagine if we could actually get the documents from OMB, from the State Department, from the Department of Defense, all of whom have documents, texts, emails, who knows what else, that are relevant to tell us much more clearly and paint a much more unequivocal picture about what was really swirling around these various conversations, because everything we've been learning in the past week just makes it a much harder climb for Republicans to defend this behavior as if it, it's just wrong, not impeachable. Yeah, I think it is it, it is going to be hard, although it's interesting because I think there's a division among Republicans. The, I think a lot of the smart ones want to take that line. It's wrong, but not impeachable. But Trump has made it hard and others are sort of trying to defend, you know, what Trump, you know, Trump, what Trump did yep. on the merits. Um, I will say that, um, you know, my read on Sondland and the situation there is as follows. And I think this is going to answer some of our listener questions because I did uh, pay close attention to those. Um, you know, a lot of people are asking sort of questions about whether Sondland's going to get prosecuted and things like that. I, I will just say if I was advising Sondland, I wouldn't I wouldn't be that concerned as a practical matter. I mean, I guess even a small chance of getting prosecuted for a felony is a big extreme concern to a rich, powerful person like Mr. Sondland. Um, so you don't want to even open yourself up to any opportunity of that. But I don't think as a practical matter he's likely to actually get prosecuted. But I do think, you know, not aside from just, you know, the creating the chance of that, I think there's just an appearance issue for him. He doesn't want to look like some sort of stooge. He appears to me like a guy who cares about his reputation. And so, you know, he said, okay, I'm, my my recollection has been refreshed. I suddenly have this, this refreshed memory. And I guess what I see is like, for example, regarding this call that Mr. Holmes overheard, uh, I would think he's going to say one of two things. Either he's going to say, you know, I just don't remember it. I may That may have happened, but I just don't recall it. So he's not going to contradict them, but just say, I don't remember it right now. 
or he's going to have a suddenly refreshed memory again, right? Yeah. And yeah. either way is I don't know how how much that moves the ball forward for Trump uh, either way. Yeah, no, I, I, I think the to your point, I, I agree with you, and I, I think that's why Sondland, it's so important for him to be very forthcoming and to stop <laughs> – Stop trying to game the testimony and walk some tightrope and just tell it like it is, because because if he, that's why we have the threat of perjury <laughs> indictments, right? Sure. It's in order to convince people to tell the truth, and so when they become in danger of perjury, that's that becomes the lever for for investigators to say you really want to make sure you correct this testimony if it's not honest and accurate, and and I think this this is another weak like that for him. And that is, that is the purpose of the statute, right? <laughs> is to convince people to tell the truth, not to just run around trapping people and prosecuting them. And I think it's important for the audience to, to understand that, um, that that is the goal of, of, of having that kind of criminal statute. I, I, so I, but I do think in order for him to do exactly what you're saying, Renato, which is to take care of his reputation, it's time to just tell it. You know, it's I think it's the I'm trying to figure out how to stay in the good graces of the Republican Party or Donald Trump um, and and provide some protection uh, rather than doing what we heard the witnesses this week do, which was take a nonpartisan fact based approach. Um, you know, just tell it like they experienced it and just be factual. And when they didn't know something, I think. Every witness this past week did the right thing in saying, I don't know, I can't answer that. I wasn't there. That's not, you know, I, that's the kind of thing that I think the American public needs to see and hear is witnesses who are, who are just trying to give the facts, not spin them. Yeah, I, got, I will say, you know, it's an interesting thing about the world in which we live in right now that being very straight and telling it, calling it like he sees it, he pretty much guarantees Mr. Sondland that he'll be attacked on Fox News, that uh, Donald Trump's going to tweet about him, uh, that he's going to be called a never-Trumper or whatever, whatever their pejorative deep state, whatever the pejorative of the day is, and he'll be ostracized because it's not about truth. It's about a, tri- a kind of a tribalism of, like, which side are you on? And if he's not on Trump's side, he's dead to these people. And I think... You know, kind of dovetails with our conversation earlier about that tweet uh, to the ambassador, uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch, is that, um, you know, that's the purpose, really, of of the of the Trump tweets and of the the haranguing of these witnesses. Yeah. And I think this is why this is an impeachment process. Right. Let's I think another thing you and I have talked about uh, um, is the, what it means to be prosecuting abuse of power as an impeachment process, right? Not as a criminal right. trial. This is not a criminal prosecution. This is a is the most powerful person in the world, let alone in the country, using the office for personal gain, and in and and in doing so, keeping everybody else quiet about it because they have the power of that bully pulpit, and that's why abuse of power is impeachable. And it now obviously that means it has to be measured against the the the, the Constitution's clear balancing of power and trying to make clear that, you know, we, we don't want to supplant elections for partisanship, but that's why it is an abuse of power lens. It's how bad is this abuse of power? That's why I think some Republicans are starting to recognize the facts are so bad here. We can't dodge the fact that there's a problem. We just have to argue that it's not at that level. But but this level, every time Trump does what he does, which is demonstrate, I will use this office, I will use the power to bully people into silence. It's why we have whistleblower statutes is so that people do not feel bullied into silence and can blow the whistle if they see violations of law or waste, fraud, and abuse. This is exactly why we have these kinds of protections. And the more he uses that bully pulpit and the more it works, the more endangered our Constitution is. You know, it's interesting. Um, you, you mentioned the whistleblower status, and uh, we had a question about that this week from one of our listeners. 
uh, about what could be done if somebody's trying to out the whistleblower. You know, my take, I took a look at that issue um, and something I discussed it in length uh, for our our Patreon news, uh, newsletter and a podcast. And um, it looks to me like there's no enforcement mechanism. Yeah. I, that in other words, if they, there's really nothing that can be done legally uh, if members of Congress, for example, start trying out the whistle- whistleblower. Yeah, I think this is a real example of um, the American public learning about our laws and how they work and how they're deficient. Because I think the, under, the, the common understanding is, oh, whistleblowers are protected. Well, whistleblowers are protected, as you know, Renato, but in, in terms of their employment, Correct. <laughs> in terms of their employment, they're not they don't have any other forms of protection and national security witnesses, as we know, is even a a more unique animal because of the issue of protecting classified information. So uh, even the notion that as we saw in the debate about whether Congress gets the whistleblower complaint, which really they obviously should have gotten, but there's always been this fight between the executive branch and the legislative branch about, about the degree to which they could directly receive that classified information. Uh, so that's why we have this process where a whistleblower in the national security community has to go through the inspector general's office. And then the inspector general has to go, you know, up the chain in order to get it to Congress, but that there are no other protections built in for whistleblowers in terms of their identity. If someone on Capitol Hill were to out them and, and unfortunately that in this context, that is exactly why we have some folks not coming forward because they recognize that there aren't sufficient protections for them in an administration that has made clear in the form of Donald Trump himself personally that it will act and it will retaliate. It just may not do it in a way that is unlawful. And that's very dangerous. Yeah, I think uh, if there's one theme that's run through a lot of the questions that I've received over the past few years um, and some of the comments that I've had to make in response, it's that people have this assumption that when you do something wrong that there's some person there to lock you up and throw you in prison, and that's not the way the law often works. And so um, people have, uh, unfortunately, the public is starting to learn that, as you point out. Um, one issue I do want to um, talk to you about is there's been a lot of discussion about hearsay this week, which is <laughs> kind of interesting. You know, I'm I spent a lot of of my time, uh, I spent a lot of my legal career mastering the federal rules of evidence because <laughs> uh, you have to if you try yep. cases. It's rare that anyone besides uh, me and other people in the courtroom with me care about the federal <laughs> rules right. of evidence. But the Republicans are making a lot of arguments about hearsay this week. Um, uh, what I would ju- what I would say about that uh, is that you know first of all, well hearsay. Uh, just so uh, just to explain, well what, maybe why, why don't you explain what hearsay is, and we can kind of talk about. Well, I'm curious what you think of the arguments too. Maybe I should have you ex- explain it because you well, know it as well I, as I do. Know, well, I, I wanted to hear you explain it, but I mean, it, the, the 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 bottom line is you know the reliability of what the statements mm-hmm. are, which in a court of law means we want to hear from the person who made them so that we know they're reliable. And so usually it means you can't say he said, she said. And then of course we have the, you know, you had Devin Nunez talking about fourth degree of hearsay, which is like, how many people did this (laughs) statement go through? You know, but, but as, as, you know, I, you probably have some great stories about the exceptions to hearsay. And when you get, when you are able under the exceptions that exist, um, in the federal rules of evidence that allows hearsay. <laughs> and, you know, I think people need to understand that the issue is, is, the, is the, the degree to which you can rely upon what you're being told someone said. And I, so I, th- I just think that's important to hold here as Republicans are, are, are throwing hearsay into this without any real analysis of, are we able to understand the reliability of what we're hearing versus whether we're hearing it directly from the person who said it? And in this instance, where we have so many people who are saying the same things over and over and over again, you know, just speaks volumes in and of itself. I, and, and of course, 
you know, when we get into this call on July 26, where we're going to have witnesses who overheard parts of the call or where Sondland in the heat of that moment gave his sense of what the president was thinking and feeling like all of those are the kinds of things, you know, many of us would be arguing would come in <laughs> as, yep. as evidence. And I, I think that um, is important. I do want to make one other point about this because I, I do want to hear what you think about the hearsay argument, but I just have to say this because, you know, I think we've been, rightly and understandably talking about criminal law so much during this process. But but the fact is, this is not a criminal proceeding. And it is a critically important proceeding. And most presidents, including Richard Nixon, the fundamental foundation of his impeachment was abuse of power. The fact that there was a water break, Watergate break-in and therefore a, a crime it did not change that most of the articles of impeachment were about abuse of power. The same is true for Andrew Johnson. Uh, uh, so I, I, I think we're, we, we forget that it's Congress that decides what evidence is sufficient, credible, reliable, and therefore provides grounds for impeachment. Yeah, I, I well, I would say I agree with you 100 percent that this is not a court proceeding. The rules of evidence don't apply. Uh, and um, I think that's also and we could talk a little bit about the whole bribery uh, issue later. You know, it's, it's a thing people should keep in mind. I think that all too often we spend a lot of time arguing about legalisms that don't actually matter uh, for purposes of this. But to get back to the point of hearsay, I'll just explain for listeners what hearsay means. I mean, one one way I personally think that the Republican argument on this point has largely been ineffective. I think it's fine when they say well, this person didn't talk to Trump or didn't see, you know, they didn't speak directly to Trump. Okay, I think people can get their head around that. And that's it's actually a fair point uh, in certain contexts. But the whole hearsay thing, I don't even think the average person really knows what hearsay means. Uh, I mean, what hearsay is under the law, it probably has a different meaning than it does uh, in common speak. But what it means is that all it is, is it's not a firsthand account. So in other words, if I, you know, Michael Cohen can say, you know, in terms of here, you know, directly, I, um, you know, I witnessed Donald Trump do this. I witnessed him, you know, uh, speak with Stormy Daniels or something like that. He's talking about what he saw, what he heard. Right. And that's direct evidence. That's not hearsay. A bank record is hearsay because mm-hmm. a bank record is um, just some piece of paper that contains numbers and letters and things on it. But it's not all these document documents, which we often consider very reliable, are technically hearsay under the federal rules of evidence. And there has to be an exception. And there isn't, of course, an exception for um, records of regularly conducted activity, often uh, called the business records exception, uh, that would allow that 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 uh, business record to come in if there's certain testimony to, to supporting the uh, bank record. But the, the reason I use those examples are that you know, uh, you were talking, uh, Maya, a moment ago about what matters is reliability. And most of us would trust uh, the records of, uh, you know, a bank, or a Chase Bank or something. Then we would trust Michael Cohen's word, not say so on something. And, um, you know, even though Michael uh, Cohen's testimony in this context would be direct evidence, whereas the other one would be hearsay, you know, more traditionally, Hearsay is when another person says, I heard someone else say this, right? That's what I think is par- uh, the kind of the paradigm or the what comes to mind when, when we think of hearsay legally. And in this context, like that phone call where Trump is speaking over the phone, that's technically, you would think that's hearsay. The difference here, though, is that because Donald Trump is the person who's the uh, the 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 object of this impeachment inquiry, even if this was a criminal proceeding, uh, that would come in as evidence as non hearsay because it would be the statement of the party opponent in the case. The Democrats would be able to offer um, that testimony on that basis alone as non hearsay. It's one of many exceptions to the hearsay rule. Uh, I, I, I guess, you know, my bottom line is I don't think any of this matters. I, and I think uh, what matters, as you, as you point out, Maya, is how reliable and persuasive the testimony is. Yeah, I, and, and I think that one of the reasons why Republicans are using hearsay so actively is less for the broad American public and much more for the base 
that uh, sure. is, and so it's less about facts, it's less about reliability, and it's more about just don't listen to this. Sure. I think it's just more distraction and trying to provide, you know, they don't have a lot to talk about here. The facts are very damning on their face. There's clearly proof of this, you know, scheme uh, aid for for a, an announcement, a sort of an announcement of investigation. That scheme is pretty well established. I think it's going to be hard to deny by the time this is over. And so there's just all this, this circus around it. Um, let's just talk for a moment. I, people on the podcast have heard me discuss before whether, you know, this should be how we should call which we what we should call this whole thing. I know it's something you and I have discussed privately. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my view on this has always been, you know, I'm concerned about the use of the term bribery, which the, the speaker used this week, um, because I was concerned that it would allow the sort of discussion of technical legal arguments about whether it's technically bribery, which can be a challenging thing to prove in a criminal case, which is irrelevant to this proceeding. I mean, it's not, as you point out, it's not a criminal case. This is, a, and I, you know, the abuse of power here is clear. But I will say, though, you know, a CNN anchor when I was on mentioned to me there on the air said that there's some sort of focus group that found that bribery was more effective or the Democrats had a focus group. I, I will say, as you know, we use jury consultants sometimes as litigators. If a if a focus group told me that was the effective phrase, I probably would use that, too. Um, I just you know, I I worry, though, about about uh, sort of arguments about the legal the kind of the legal um, technicalities uh, here. Yeah, I uh, yeah, and you know I agree. I've been very concerned about the same thing and including the suggestion that it something's only impeachable if it's indictable. Right. <laughs> uh, I think that is that flies in the face of the history of impeachment proceedings we've had and and really ignores what the founding fathers in in including Hamilton and Federalist Paper Number 26, where he was quite eloquent about this impeachment being about protecting the public from abuse of power. And the founders really did liken it to, you know, trying to uh, ensure that we were not turning into a monarchy. <laughs> and I, so, so that's not about whether it was bribery or not bribery or extortion, but but at the same time, I think part of what's happening, of course, politically is bribery is a, an explicit term in the Constitution. And to the extent there's this debate about what did the founding fathers mean by high crimes and misdemeanors, um, there, there are some very good scholarly pieces written that make it clear that they really were thinking about people doing the job in such a dangerous fashion that they should be removed, not just whether it's a, a, a legal crime. But but it's also, you know, this um, the political moment we're in where there's this feeling that you have to articulate an indictable crime. And that may be both an unfortunate, you know, casualty of the Mueller probe, which, you know, focused very exclusively because it was a special prosecutor on whether or not crimes were committed and whether there was sufficient evidence of crime. And remember, as you, you and I both know, Robert Mueller didn't say there wasn't evidence of crime when it came to conspiracy with Russia. He said because of people lying and destroying and destroying evidence that they couldn't find sufficient evidence. And that's important distinction. But it's gotten us into this kind of trap about whether or not, in fact, there is an indictable crime. And that's why I, I keep going back to personal gain, because the one thing that is useful about terms like bribery, extortion, is folks' general sense of what are we talking about in terms of how this happened. You know, this that, that Donald Trump really had something that the Ukrainians desperately needed. And they desperately needed it because they're in an active and hot war with Russia, <laughs> And so it so it really and and why it was so important to us as a nation that they get that support, both their photo op with him in in a meeting with the new anti-corruption administration to send a message to Moscow, uh, as well as the military aid. So I, I think this is why people can understand if people can understand that the primary issue here bribery, extortion, it's all about abusing power for personal gain. 
right? That's all it is. I like that phrase better because I think it's more accurate. What I always worry about it, I will say, is that, you know, and this is I'll, this will give people insight in how I try cases as a criminal defense attorney is, regardless of the technical elements of a crime, people have in their minds what a crime should look like. Right. So, you know, I recently I had obtained an acquittal in a conspiracy case, be, part because the jury thought a con- criminal conspiracy has got to be way more nefarious uh, than that, than what the, the the had happened in that particular case. And I think here people think of bribery like money. You know, there's some like cash that's given in exchange for something or whatever. Um, and I think what if if this was if I was a member of Congress trying to explain this to people, I would be explaining it in terms of, as you point out, my this is an abuse of power to get something for his own gain, and you know because it's not cash, it's but it's something that mattered for him politically, and that's what this is really all about. Yep, a thing of value. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it certainly mattered to him. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one issue I will I will say that that it, I was surprised at the number of questions from listeners on and I is, is what will happen when we go to the Senate. I think a lot of people are concerned that there won't even be a Senate trial at all. That McConnell's not going to take it up or that that's going to turn into a, a complete circus. You know, as it seemed to me from what I've heard uh in the news, am I it seems like um, that McConnell has, has conceded that there's going to have to be a trial if this gets sent over from the House. So there will be some sort of proceeding, but we don't really know what that's going to look like, do we? We don't. Um, and you're, you're absolutely right that there's – and understandably, people are concerned about Mitch McConnell as the person, as the senator who denied a sitting president his constitutional right to have a hearing for his Supreme Court nominee – on the completely bogus argument that had, that because Obama had one more year in office, he didn't get to nominate and have heard and have a hearing for a a Supreme Court nominee. So that has people feeling like we, Mitch McConnell will game the rules to the benefit of Donald Trump. And so it's completely understandable. At the same time, Mitch McConnell you know, heard and understood that the rules of the Senate do not allow him <laughs> to refuse to have a trial. So then the question becomes, but what does the trial look like? And that is a really interesting question none of us can really answer now. I mean, remember, we've only had two trials of sitting presidents, right? Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton. And the Bill Clinton trial, you know, it's basically, um, you know, there was deposition testimony that was videotaped that folks heard. And but that was because you had and you had Bill Clinton had been a witness. He had he had a deposition testimony. And, you know, we don't you know, there's all with the obstruction of Congress, uh, with not knowing what more witnesses are going to come forward uh, without knowing whether or not there's going to be any documentary evidence beyond what we already know about, you know, whether they're going to continue to be successful at stonewalling. We don't really know even what all the body of evidence is going to be, because even as we learned last week, more evidence keeps coming forward in the form of witnesses who are now testifying to things they saw and heard. So so it's a little hard to know, because I don't think the Senate can know until they both till this process plays itself out and until they um, see what all the evidence is and until there are, there are a full set of articles of impeachment and what all the articles are on. But I think what is true, unfortunately, unlike when Bill Clinton uh, faced trial for, for an impeachment trial in the Senate, is I, we will not see a bipartisan effort by the majority leader and the minority leader in the Senate to figure out a way to have this be a credible process. That actually did happen in the Bill Clinton impeachment. There was still enough concern about the institution of the Senate that they they should come up with a way to ensure that it does not become a dog and pony show, that it doesn't become a farce, that it has credibility, that it's balanced. And they did that. And, and, and that that we will not see, unfortunately. Without a doubt, yeah. I, I, I 
would not be surprised if McConnell, you know, sharply limits the witnesses, says that they've already heard enough, you know, from certain witnesses and so forth. And I certainly, you know, that you've seen Rand Paul and um, Lindsey Graham and others have talked about calling certain witnesses. They want to call the whistleblower. They want to exclude all testimony that they deem to be hearsay. So I, I could see it turning into some sort of sham that will make it, you know, there'll be complaints uh, by uh, Democrats, but I think um, it will make it easier for, you know, Senate Republicans to just ignore uh, strong evidence that was presented to the public uh, via the House proceedings. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. Uh, well, you know, one thing also that I will say is, you know, it does seem like, uh, you know, I have I've thought for a while that this process is going to go at a very quick speed. It seems like this this is the the House is really going to get this to, you know, done and to the Senate, you know, at least by the end of the year. Does it appear that way to you as well? Yeah, it does. They're moving so quickly. I think the only thing that might derail that is more witnesses continue to come forward that are that are clearly important witnesses. So if if they're still discovering that there are people who have more direct knowledge, they are going to have to, I think, I think it, it, even though there's tons of evidence right now, I think they do need that if it continues to come forward and they will, I, I have no doubt they'll work weekends if they have to. Um, but it's, you know, they're also concerned about both the appearance of trying to interfere in an election process, presidential election process, but they're also this on the Senate side, Obviously, Democrats are are deeply concerned with how it's going to impact sitting senators who also need to be on the campaign trail. So there there are all kinds of factors uh, flying around this. But I think the most important for all of us is getting the most facts that we can so that the American public, not just Congress, but the American public can understand what happened. Yeah, I will say, you know, it's been interesting to see the comments that were left uh, by uh, by uh, listeners who were interested in, you know, getting quite, you know, asking us questions. And a lot of people were like, can we hurry this up? And then there are other people saying there's other people like, let's include every offense he may have committed. Let's, (laughs) you know, do a look at emoluments and let's look at uh, obstruction and all these other things. And I think, you know, Democrats are in a spot where they're trying to get this done. Um, before the holiday, uh, and they really, they really want to do that because the Iowa caucuses are right around the corner, and I think it's important for them to sort of reduce the argument that Republicans are going to make that we should just let the election decide these issues. Yeah, and I, I think that the part of this that is really hard for Democrats is what happened with the Mueller report, where the feeling was. You know, part of the issue there is there there were bombshells in that report, including on obstruction. And because it was so dense and because there was so much in it and because it was hard for the American public to really get a sense of and so poisoned, of course, by the misleading summary of the report that William Barr shamefully put out. Uh, rather than doing what Robert Mueller had intended, which was just release those summaries of each section, that you know it that it's it also I think I'm assuming I don't have personal knowledge of this, but they're also gun shy about making the story um, too much to follow and feeding the argument that they're just trying to do whatever they can to 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 get Donald Trump rather than focusing on what all Americans can understand to be deeply problematic for the country. So I, I have sympathy certainly for all, for all the positions because I think there is so much evidence of wrongdoing by Donald Trump. Um, and I personally have said that because of the obstruction of Congress, um, the, and, and to be clear, the uh, completely shocking and astounding obstruction. I mean, no other president has gone to the lengths of this president to block Congress from information it constitutionally has a right to. (laughs) I mean, usually there's bickering over how many documents and whether there's some that can be withheld. Not you can't get any and we and you can't talk to anybody. I mean, that's including 
remember Corey Lewandowski, people who didn't even work for the mm-hmm. White House. I mean, that's, exactly. it's just been shocking. So, so I, but given the pattern of obstruction here and given the obstruction and the pattern of obstruction that was clearly laid out with evidence in the Mueller report, you know, it, 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 it does seem that somehow Congress needs to get obstruction um, clearly and aggressively in the articles of impeachment and that you know, it may be worth pulling in the mul- the evidence from the Mueller report to show the pattern of behavior, that this isn't that part of what makes it so impeachable is it's a pattern of behavior denying constitutional oversight to Congress, but also mm-hmm. obstructing justice, and that, that and which is what's happening right now. And um, so I, I think that mm-hmm. there is an argument for some expansion, but not not because it's uh, taking on everything, but because it's so central to what we're seeing around the, what is the Ukraine scandal, which is active obstruction, including from lawyers who work for the public. I, yeah, you know, for it's, just, sure. it's just unnerving. It is. I will say, you know, there is definitely a connection here between uh, Mueller and um, the Mueller uh, situation in this, you know, particularly given that Mueller testified the day before yes. uh, Trump's call with the Ukrainian president. And Trump mentions it in the call and, you know, criticizes Mueller in the call. You know, I will say, um, you know, the, there's trial lawyers uh you know, are can be all over the map on this. I know there's some people who, particularly prosecutors, who feel like, well, they have such a high burden, they want to throw everything into the case that they can, overwhelm the other side. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm of the belief, and it's been my experience that keeping the story simple uh, is the key to uh, victory, particularly in a complex case. I've tried a lot of very complex uh, cases, and I think the the person with the simple story usually wins in a trial. So I. I'm sympathetic to what the Democrats are trying to do here, and I think there's some definite political realities. Um, but I think you know one thing that they have uh, that's a, a tension coming up is the more time they take to present witnesses and go through this, the more that this might be able to break through with the public. Um, but of course, they have you know political realities in terms of the schedule, which we already discussed. And you know I you know, was going to sort of close by asking you what we should be looking forward to and what you think, how you think what, what, uh, excuse me, listeners should be making sense of what they're going to be hearing in this upcoming week. And I have to say, Maya, it's going to be challenging because there's just so much going on this week. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a lot to throw at the public at once. It is a lot. I, I, think that the, the, and the way I think about it is I listen to key dates, you know, May 23rd, July 10th, July 25 and 26, and then the few dates in September. You know, in other words, these critical points where, because um, uh, it was in May, clearly in May, April, May, that um, the Trump administration started shifting away from what was the bipartisan agreement about what the national security interests of the country were, <laughs> which is getting yeah. money and support to this new administration in the Ukraine that was going to fight corruption. Um, you know, what happened around those pivotal dates where that clearly shifted um, the July, July 10th and July 18th, you know, these dates where it's now becoming very clear that there is this um, effort to withhold money and aid from Ukraine in exchange for these investigations on the Bidens. And then, you know, and then as we move through into, and of course the call, and now this July 26th has become a critical date because July 26th, now we know there's been a conversation, Gordon Sondland with President Trump that people overheard that go directly Mm -hmm. to his intent and state of mind. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and then, and then, of course, September and and this shift and and aid now getting freed up. So I I think those are I think of them in those kind of date timelines of these big kind of bright timeline bullet points where witnesses adding information around those are, are what I pay attention to, and that's that's why, as we were saying early, Sondland on July 26. What's he going to say about that? And what's he going to, and, and he corrected his testimony around those September dates. What's he really going to say about that? And he did have direct conversations with Donald Trump. What more is he going to say about those direct conversations? And same for Kurt Volker. So I, I think of, I think of it around those key points in time. 
I think that's a good roadmap for the uh, testimony to come. And I really appreciate you coming on. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, I, I always uh, learn a lot and enjoy speaking with you. So thank you so much, Maya. Thank you, Renato. You've been, you've been such a clear, consistent, and educating voice. I appreciate you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 